episode 16 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of a concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox, to play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with Keith Jackson on the afternoon of November 13th, 2016, in my living room in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. Keith is a Chicago-based improviser and composer who plays tenor and soprano saxophone, bass clarinet, and many other reed instruments in many groups and ad hoc improvised contexts. You're currently hearing me talk over Symbol Reform from Southern Sun, a 2015 album by his quartet with Josh Berman, Jan-Rum Strom, and Tolef Ostfam. Please excuse my bad pronunciation of those Norwegian names. At the end of the interview, you'll hear Swap from Rose and Rose, his 2016 duo with Jason Adeshevitz. Both are tunes that Keefe wrote. To find out more about Keefe's different projects, upcoming performances, and that sort of thing, check out keefjackson.com. A note about this episode. All these episodes are heavily edited. The hour you're about to hear, for example, is carved out of a four-hour-long hang. When editing, I've been moving further away from the imperative to create a naturalistic scene in which you imagine you're hearing the subject take a blindfold test in something like real time. My goal here is to string together the most interesting parts of our conversation, and the guessing game part is sometimes not that interesting. One casualty, however, of my irreverence toward naturalism in this episode in particular, is that there are several times when you won't hear us identifying the players or album that we're listening to. I'm assuming that everyone out there in podcast land has ready internet access and can check out the playlist and full lineups for each track at the Now Is website. Speaking of which, you can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can also stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W-I-S.org, where, like I said, you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for Keith. You can also like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, Keith Jackson. Is it the one where they're sitting... Like it's Lee Connors and Moore Marsh, and they're like sitting kind of in the grass. Is it that one? On the cover? I have no idea. Oh, I, I just have this is the complete Atlantic recording, so I don't know. Oh, it's a box of cash. Yeah. I, mean, I think this may, because the one I'm thinking of is an Atlantic one. Yeah. That's a problem with some of those records. <clears throat> a lot of them didn't have titles. Mm-hmm. Or it's just like Lee Connors, Warren Marsh, Volume 1 or Volume 2 or whatever. But it. There, but there would be like different ones with the same or similar titles, so that's why I sort of visualize the covers. It's sure. like that grass thing. With the, <clears throat> they're kind of, it's like a sunny day, and they have these big smiles, and they're kind of <laughs> sitting there, like <coughs> excuse me, like on the grass, like 
and kind of the legs and holding their knees. Or right, I can, I, can, I can picture the pose. It's such a great cover. It has. These guys were like really devoted to the line and to the like, the, it's just all about the line, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the melodic rhythmic, but it's, it's, that's like sort of like the primary concern of everything. Because the harmonies, you know, they just played basically over the same 20 tunes or whatever it was, and they wrote new heads for them and stuff. But, but it's not like let's we're not trying to like make some crazy new harmonies or something. It's it's really just about line, you know. Okay. And um, and obviously this particular head background music is just kind of really naughty, naughty with a K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. K and O T T Y naughty. Yeah. Sort of thing like gnarly. Yeah, head that moves around a lot in, in these really interesting ways. Um, with the, the the way the rhythm sort of like pushes and pulls. Yeah, I'll skip back to the beginning because we kind of weren't. So you can hear it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. Hear yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. You can sing along. It's okay. <laughs> you can sing along. <laughs> you know, I was working on this. Um, transcription the other day and it was from right around this time probably 56 57 only bonus <clears throat> transcription well this one was with Warren Marsh and Ted Brown okay. who was he was another saxophone player that was around I think he's still alive actually but he was around during this time and um, he recorded a lot in the 50s okay and then he sort of went and did other things, but he would make a record every 10, 15 years. And um, I was working on his, one of his solos, and it was just so reminiscent of Lester Young. And I mean, of course, they all are, Lee and, and Warren, and everyone is sort of like coming out of this Lester Young thing, but it just, there were certain things that he was doing like over and over again that were just so, and I, was, I realized that the, the rhythmic um, sort of impetus was actually sort of leaning heavily like, like of course he had heard Charlie Parker, but he was really sort of dealing with the, the rhythms in a way that was pre-Charlie Parker also, mm -hmm. that was really coming more basically out of just the Lester Young. In the 20s or whatever, everything was this two-beat feel, and it was everything. There was sort of like a lot of on the one, and I mean, you still have this syncopations and stuff, but it was much more jazz. It was much more like kind of. Can you sing the rhythm on the front of the um, thing? Well, you know, I, we should. Get, <laughs> maybe, maybe we can pull up an example later. But yeah, um, sure. but then you. Um, then you have, you know, then sort of the swing era and sort of the bands got bigger and, and you have this kind of, um, uh, you know, if you think about the difference between the way that Louis Armstrong's rhythm section played versus count bass, you know, this is sort of like slowly, and then you started to get more into 4-4 four, four. <clears throat> and, um, and then Lester Young was sort of like one of the ones that was really playing quite freely over it, rhythmically. And using a lot of like, s sort of speech-like inflections and stuff. And I think they really, the, the th one thing that's interested me is the way that Lee and Warren sort of like, 
took really small gestures of his and sort of expanded on them. And like, because it's, I don't, I mean, all these words are sort of um, lacking, but like the naughtiness of, this is a very different naughtiness from Lester Young's naughtiness, even though a lot of the rhythmic impetus and a lot of the feeling is the same. They really sort of like <clears throat> put this microscope to the rhythms and then like sort of like made this, it's like a, it grows like the way that a, uh, it sort of expands in a way, the gesture. They're extrapolating on the sort of line that Lester Young would have played, like writing out a through composed version of something like he would have played or something like yeah it's that but it's more because it's they're taking like little gestures of his and like making a whole eight bars out of it right or a, or a whole in, in a way that he never would have you know? right so i i have a copy of this chart um that was in warren marsh's handwriting because he wrote that tune and at the top of it it says all of me and then it has a little uh squiggle under it yeah and then underneath in parentheses or maybe off to the side it says background music oh, yeah. so it's like the main title is all of me which is the tune that the, that the yeah. it's based on the chords are the same and uh i thought that was really interesting like he wrote this this beautiful like <laughs> yeah. head and he did all this you know and he wrote it out and then he went to put but then i was thinking like maybe at the beginning he didn't have title yeah and he's and, like this is my variation on all of me yeah like here's my all of me here's my all of me here's my all of me so this thing with this <clears throat> like the West Coast cool thing, like I think a lot of people were trying to relate it to the, because like the Lighthouse All-Stars, they played in a, it was a beach bar. Mm -hmm. So they played on the beach, basically. That's these guys? I don't, I don't know. Oh, no, this is a, another group that was sort of like famously um, yeah, West Coast famous for whatever, this West yeah. Coast sure, jazz sure. sound. And it was like, yeah, they were on the beach in California. It was Sunday afternoon. They would play in the afternoon. Yeah. And they <clears throat> did this really long residency, and they sort of like, define this own, their own sound. Yeah, how is that different from, you know, Monk playing at the Jazz Gallery and, and right, right, it, right. you know, it's this, you know, dark bar downtown and it's, people are, you know, it's a different, it's just the, the atmosphere is different, the whole, the whole thing is different. So I think, yeah, sure, there are things <clears throat> like that about music, of course, it influences you if you're sitting on the beach and mm -hmm. the sand is hot and the sun is hot and it's gonna, you're gonna start to play a little bit different from Versus if you're downtown sure, in New York sure, and you're sure. do you think that and you, you know. the way those things are um, sort of the taxonomy of those two things is creating like something more like emotional versus intellectual like do you think that makes sense because I mean I find it's kind of yeah no I mean I never that whole like emotionless thing I never that never made sense to me I always I always heard a lot of emotion in, in what Lee and Warren were doing and Tristano and Anyway, just this whole idea that certain music is more emotional than other. It's just, you might say, certain music is kind of like trying to be more emotionally manipulative. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Certain music, you know. But to say that if there's the, not this sort of like really outward, like crying and screaming, that it's not emotional, I just don't buy it. I think this is sort of like these sort of easy to sort of like postulate that things like that if you're writing a book. But it, it you know, which is where a lot of these things start. It's like, you know, um, yeah, of course I read a lot of books and criticism is really important, but it's also there's also like elements of it. It's it's a it's a similar thing. It's like the critic is writing something he wants you to remember it. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, a, you know, like certain pop songs are really have these like really simple hooks. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of an example of that. In the, <coughs> a hook in the and criticism. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. make this really easy metaphor so that everyone yeah. can sort of like remember it. But I think this idea that some music is more emotional than others, I, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't know. The creative impulse itself may not be emotional, but I think the idea that you want to share that impulse or, or something that you created out of it, you know, it's, it's like necessarily a communal act. So, yeah, I think I don't really think there is a way to like separate emotion from that. And even if you're I mean, even, you know, for an extreme example, if it's like I'm going to make stuff where people are trying to take their themselves out of it, kind of mm -hmm. like we're going to make this chance piece or this mm -hmm. thing with, you know, field recordings or we're just going to have one one steel wire and we're just going to touch it really lightly. And that's, mm -hmm. I really don't. I mean, some people say, oh, this is lacking in emotion and say, that's not a given, mm -hmm. you know, it's not. And it's not a given that if somebody is like hollering and screaming on the saxophone that it will inspire you in you any particular emotion. No, no. This is this sort of thing that I think we're coming to more now. It's like what before might have been the sort of like climactic emotional part of a solo where he's hollering and screaming or playing really high or something. There are artists now who are doing that sort of as their basic, like that's what they're starting with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it can't be a climax because that's what the beginning is. Right. So it's like a recontextualization of certain uh, textural areas. The world's getting bigger, not smaller. All well, of these things are, there's more of all of it. All of these things are expanding, yeah. you know. Like you have to be more open to more of it with this idea. Is it, is it emotional? It's like, no, you prefer this, you prefer that. This is more how I feel today. This is more how I feel yesterday. That's all fine, but but ascribing like a lack of emotion, I just don't buy it. Yeah, sure. I think it's like would be like the '60s era, like with Gretzmann and, and, and Parker. And, no, it's, it's not. more recent. No, no, it's the it's, same. Uh, it's '71. So okay. it's, it's so it's there's only one saxophone is credited, so I assume there's three overdubs, maybe. I'm not sure. Oh, there's overdubs. I mean, I think there's, there's only one saxophone player credited. I mean, it's like, I don't know it's, who it's, it's Pharaoh Sanders. It's Pharaoh Sanders. That's funny that, well, now we get into this part. Yeah. That's oh, funny okay. that at the beginning, though, it's like, immediately thought it was just like. Yeah, no, it sounds just like those guys. I agree. And now, I mean, yeah. this you would get, I should have I waited. Yeah, this is like this post call train. Yeah, of course we know this thing, but, um, there's always this criticism, oh, he sounds too much like Coltrane or something. <clears throat> yeah, but it's like, that's that's how he started. I mean, that's what he kind of came out of, you know, that's his, sure. like, of course he's going to sound that way. Yeah. And there's also a lot of space to do things with <clears throat> sounding like Coltrane. Like, that's a dead end. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think in... in you know, of course, it's very it's sort of free jazz. It's very free, and but you have to remember this was also in the context of like like a long-term record contract, and his producer was like trying to make him a star through these recordings. So mm -hmm. it's like, no, you're going to be the only horn player. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we're going to do the stuff, and you're going to yeah. <clears throat> and it's like maybe who know? I'm, I have no idea, but maybe Pharaoh had the idea where he's like. You know, I want to do a record with a lot of horns, and they yeah. were like, 
you know, I don't know if this happened or not, but for example, they were like, well, you know, we, we really should focus on you being your own horn player because yeah. it's really you that we're trying to sell. It's like, right, right, right. Could be. And yeah, I wonder how much those kind of considerations influence this stuff. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, that's interesting if they're trying to make him into a star. Like, what a different world of music we had in the early 70s that you would try to make someone into a star by having them. Like, no, no, no. Multi-track yourself going, <laughs> yeah. and who knows, maybe maybe he was like, oh, I, I want to do this, I want to overdub this one already. Yeah. Or maybe maybe they just played the thing and he was like, I want to add some stuff. Yeah. Who knows yeah. Um, how that came about. But uh, Well, it's interesting also because like in some ways you say it's like free, kind of like abrasive and stuff, but it's also... Um, Especially considering how like maximal and like sort of thick the general sound is, it's kind of droning in a way too. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this this part here this is this <clears throat> real typical kind of you know Alice Coltrane post post Coltrane kind of yeah um, area. What aspect of it? I mean, I, I know what you just, mean. Just like, what are you? You know, with of? the piano with the sustained pedals and the sort of like rolling non non-metric rhythm and, and, you know, the sort of drony kind of thing. This is, to me, I, this is very comforting, sort of, sort of like comfort food. I think, yeah, I would, I, there was just always something comforting about, I don't know, if people are screaming, is that supposed to be disconcerting? Maybe, but, but the background, of, at least of this section, it's like enveloping sort of, if you'll, you know, follow this analogy, this is sort of like very maternal kind of like it's like a nice bed to lay in, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like comforting in that way. Mm -hmm. Let the record show Keith is mouthing and mouthing. You should be singing. Inflection it's more fun when you sing it. <laughs> yeah, tell me about inflection. I mean, well, tell me, first of all, tell me what it is, if you know what it is. Oh, it's, also this is the um, Eric Dolphy and Booker Little. I can't remember the exact name of this tune, but I've heard it. It's so blues, but it's like the, the harmonies are changed like just enough that you don't like sort of think about that. They're bending the pitch in a pretty yeah. easy way. Well, that's the, the, the timbral thing that he did, you know, um, with the alto. I mean, he did with the bass player too, but well, um, it's sort of like... It? I mean, I think of it because I also play saxophone. I think of it as I think of it in this really specific way with like how your tongue moves and kind of like how you move your jaw and stuff. So I don't yeah. know how to describe that. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, what would be a normal word for that? I, uh, yeah. So he's doing... still like he's kind of got, I guess he sort of sort of sees like the way he's kind of gumming it. Okay, you don't have to. A little bit. You don't so have to like, give instructions to the listener, but it's something that he's doing with his mouth to make this particular to bend yeah. that way. Mouth and throat, and yeah. Um, but also, timbrely, he's matching it with these really tight harmonies with the trumpet. That it really kind of like has that sort of. It's singing and stinging. Sort of like singing and stinging? Yeah, it's sort of like on the top, it's really kind of... Some people would say abrasive. Yeah. You know, I, I, to me it's rather pleasant, but I mean, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? It's sort of this yeah. like. I'm very interested in hearing you comments on this solo. It's just some crazy shit right here. What is his relationship to time there? Like the way his time is related to. Well, it's interesting because when he band. started to play that, it's not like one to one or two, whatever, two to one double time. Yeah. But the rhythm section sort of reacted to it as if it were a little bit like, were, yeah. oh, this is double time. double time. Yeah. But he wasn't, he wasn't, didn't go to double time, but he stayed in that, whatever that. It's like quad. Some sort of quadruplet, right? I don't know what. Yeah, I would have to analyze that more to say exactly what it is. But he sort of like stayed in that thing with that relationship to the original time. And then when they did the double time, it um, uh, it sort of created this other thing. Because he sort of like he could have easily gone with them into like a more normal double time feel. Yeah. But he was kind of already doing that before too. So it's. <laughs> It's really, yeah, it's like rhythmically there's so much going on. Yeah. And they're trying to like... Like even here, you know. They're trying to do what? Or like just a minute ago, the drummer is like going more double, but the bass player's not. But they're like, you know, they're all kind of like going back and forth. Sometimes independently, that was a big step for the group sound, you know. Cause... So no, tell me about the way Dolphy's constructing lines. Well, there's this like sort of more normal swinging parts, and then this more gestural stuff like that. really tight trills. And then another signature thing is he'll do this more or less normal swing line and then interrupt it with these high notes. Mm -hmm. And then this more like blurry gestural stuff. Blurry, blurry gestural stuff, that's good, yeah. Well, and blurry in the sense that he like it's harder to, to distinguish the individual notes. Mm -hmm. um, but then he also does this <clears throat> sort of like bird song gesture, like really small gestures. And sometimes it'll, they'll be isolated or sometimes they'll string them together. Mm -hmm. Like right there. That's, yeah. You know, maybe it doesn't come immediately to mind, but you think about it, you're saying, like, yeah, a lot of birds sound that way. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so it's kind of, yeah. A year ago in this, uh, in this very room, I asked something, I asked Jason Stein something about um, the ability of an instrument, and especially a reed instrument, to sound like uh, an animal or mm. a human crying or some, some not an instrument to, to remind you of like vocal cords and really, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
and he said something like he was pretty negative about that. He was like saying how he don't hear stuff as sound, not as, and to the extent that it's some a player playing sounds like a screaming horse or something like that. Mm. He thinks of it as a bad thing. Mm. Uh, or maybe he was saying that about his own playing. But in any case, yeah. Do you yeah. do you think of like? You you make a lot of you like making unconventional sounds on the saxophone and, and yeah sometimes I mean sometimes I I mean it's pretty rare that I like consciously think of an animal right but it does happen yeah you know it's like, oh yeah I'm gonna do that elephant thing now <laughs> or whatever yeah you know, yeah, or, yeah this is the goat or right 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 I'm not gonna say that never happened like. Like, especially if you have a little room, if there's like kind of a denser improvisation, you have a little room to like stop for a minute and sort of like, okay, what am I gonna gonna play? Oh yeah, let's give him a little- Give him a little goat. A little goat or whatever, (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't see anything problematic. I mean, the problem is, I think the, the thing that's problematic about that is when you get into this like, really kind of more stereotypical people, it's easy to oversimplify things like that. Right. But like, as we can see, like, you know, the sort of stereotypical view would be that like, oh yeah, Dolphy loved to imitate the birds on his flute. Mm-hmm. But no, actually he did it on all of his instruments. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's not just like, yeah. we think of the, here's the bird and the flute and the, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's something more than that. It's like, yeah. that's, this is, this is sort of like the simplest yeah. part of it. But is the imitation? No, no, just just this whole like, oh yeah, bird song, flute song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, no, but there's so many different, more uh, more different layers to it. Right. Well, he's making music out of it too. He's not just right. imitating it. You know, Boots Randolph had that whole thing with the chicken. And he really took that really far. Just yeah. that one chicken gesture, and he made sort of a hit song out of it. And, and then it and then it became this thing where it's like. All the saxophone players had to learn how to do that because it was mm-hmm. such a hit that everyone wanted that on their record. And so, right. and, and, you know, and it's like, how did? The, but but then, like, when you have, you know, I mean, I think Dolphy did this a little bit, but a lot of his his contemporaries were playing like really commercial music a lot during mm-hmm. during their careers, and and then also recording the jazz and the more creative stuff. And with these really busy schedules, I think, you know, at a certain point it's like, okay, I did this, I learned how to do this Boots Randolph thing because <clears throat> they wanted to hear it on this record. And But it's not that you sort of like forget that or like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah, still like something Yeah, into the sound. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's also interesting because that distances it from, it takes it a step removed from the animal or an extra step removed because it's more imitating someone else's imitation. And actually a lot of um, sounds that players make that could be attributed to being animal sounds could also be thought of as being like an imitation of like a cartoon animal. Right. Like, you know, like something that would happen in like a Disney movie more than, you know, uh, more than necessarily actually hanging out at the zoo and listening to the elephants. It more be about the elephants and that scene of the Jungle Book or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. But also, there's like machine sounds too. Oh yeah, sure. That are, I mean, you know, and this is a big part of pop culture. It's like car sounds and mm-hmm. stuff, or, or like these sort of 
typically, you know, kind of cartoony stuff like this factory sure, sound. Sure, sure. Or like the beginning of that Pharaoh shot could have sounded like a jet or something, like right. taking off or something. It's that yeah. kind of drony but abrasive kind of machine sound. Yeah. And and now, I mean, even, you know, like this sort of like textural considerations that people are thinking of now, it's like, yeah, I want to make this song that sounds like a refrigerator. Right. <laughs> really sort of like, here's a couple of t like really specific tones and it's just kind of, we're just going to let this sit and it's going to hum and it's kind of like, this is, yeah, it's great. This is, is it, it's definitely Braxton, but is it with Richard Tidal, yep. Tidalbaum? Yeah. yeah. To me, the way I related to it when I first heard Braxton was, um, I thought, wow, this is great because he can play, it's like, it's like playing with a rhythm section, but it's just a totally different sounding rhythm section. So he can play like more different stuff based on the, the synthesizer. I don't know if it might take some criticism for this, but it just didn't seem that strange to me. I don't know. I just thought, yeah, of course you would do this. This sounds great. Right. You know, I don't, it didn't, it, it was never really like problematic, like people Well, is that, people it, say like, oh, this is outside or it's, you know, I don't know. It's just, no, if you're a, if you're an artist, if you're a saxophone player and you're trying to like, do some things that are interesting to you that are like try to explore some different territory changing the rest of the band is like a really good way to do it because because right. then you have something different to react to and like so yeah. if we just let's have instead of a drummer let's have a synthesizer player instead yeah. of a so how is how is he reacting differently uh, especially considering one of the big differences with the synthesizer computer is it's not constrained by like certain like human elements. Like it's certainly not constrained by breath. Right. Um, he probably has the ability to randomize pitch in some sort of way that he has control over, but not the same sort of control or intention you would on a saxophone. Sure. Of so course. How are they improvising differently because the two of them together because of that? I mean, he's still playing like more or less melodically, you know, uh -huh. and he's not playing a ton of like. Um, you know, sort of what people would say are extended timbral things, or these kind of. Mm -hmm. But also, the synthesizer isn't going just all over the place timbral. He's sort of sticking in this one kind of area, and he's playing all kinds of crazy pitches. But but this is, I mean, you know, Braxton is when you you know earlier you were talking about this. West Coast cool kind of ideas, you know, I think that he got a lot of criticism for being a fan of Paul Desmond or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, he loves Paul Desmond. But I still, this idea that it's not emotional, I just don't buy it. Yeah. I, I think that's, this is some like really weird, distorted way of thinking that I, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Good. no, that's ridiculous. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me in theory. Like, let me ask you more particular, where do you, how do you, think of emotion in music like this like it's easy potentially to translate even if it is a metaphor when you're listening to pharaoh to be like oh it's the emotion of like the whale which has this sort of like theatrical aspect to it mm. this doesn't 
do that, really. So where, where is emotion located in music like this? Or is it precisely something you can't translate accurately? I don't know. It's, it's just very playful and, and very jolly kind of music. I don't, I mean, I, it's more of anything. I don't, yeah, I don't see it as sort of detached at all, really. It's, there's a lot of sort of hide and seek stuff and they're kind of, you know, the sort of carefree, yeah. You know, yeah, it's very jolly, joyous, bouncy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if those are, are those real emotions. No, that makes sense. I mean, emotion is located <laughs> in every experience. Like if you were a kid playing hide and go seek, running around, you'd have this whole series of emotions going through your mind. Right. And it's not like the only emotion is like crying about somebody dying. You know, these are other things count as emotions, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is related to what I was saying earlier about these kind of cloying pop songs that are sort of like you know, in quotation marks, emotionally direct or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's it's easier for that to sort of be this kind of small, I think it's, in, in some ways, it's easy, easier for that to be sort of, again, in quotation marks, less emotional because they're like targeting this really specific thing to get a really specific response out of you. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of like a pleasure. You know what I mean? Like, um, mm, it, yeah, it's somewhere along the line. Like, so in this, I hear joy. I don't hear pleasure. I mean, there may be pleasure too, but it's not limited to pleasure. You know, but some of these pop songs, it's really like, no, we're gonna give them this kind of ear candy exactly. To, and then that's more like on this pleasure level. Yeah. And then, but which I think is more limited emotionally than. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this other, I don't want to say it's this higher level, but this other idea of more, it's more, it's more joyous, where you're not, it's not so much about the actual thing that you're tasting or listening to, or you're like, it, it, right, yeah, here's yeah. my, this is where, yeah, 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 this is where if I had read a little more of, uh, you know, got some books over there. Heidegger or something, yeah. it would be a little more like, I could tell you exactly, it's yeah, yeah, page yeah. 57. But, just you, just me. Oh, is this probably... This is like this later stuff. It's less young, but it's like... This is the main guy. It could be Oscar Peterson. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean... He's playing... Yeah. And he's sort of doing a nice job of straddling the... Like this, I don't want to say stiff, but this sort of like very 4 4 rhythm section. But he's sort of like, you know, the way that he's extending it is sort of the way that Bud Powell would extend it. It's more like melodically or harmonically than, rather than more than like, like, though he does play some nice kind of pad type rhythms, like almost like Garnery kind of like, not here, but in the head. Almost like Errol Garner. Uh -huh. He has that influence. Definitely. Yeah, and those guys were all like sort of specialists in like straddling that earlier rhythmic feel with the with the more you know fluid kind of like bebop phrasing. Right. They were just sort of they didn't get thrown like some of the younger 
or I don't know if they were younger, but some of the beboppers were like, oh no, we don't want to play like that anymore. We have this new kind of music. Yeah. And then some of the older players were like, oh, this bebop is too weird. We're not going to, you know, yeah. sort of life stops at this point, you know. Right, right. But these well, guys, since like, like JC Hurd and, and O.C. Johnson and um, Oscar Pettiford, there was a whole bunch of rhythm section guys that were really good, um, sort of like dealing with both in the same, both in the same, both in the same, dealing with both in the same, 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 in the same. You'll forgive me, but it was sort of like media-driven. This difference between the swing era guys or the or the trad guys and the beboppers was like really like sort of amplified in the jazz press. And you had you know Eddie Condon saying things like, you know, the beboppers flat their fists, and we like to drink ours. The sort of stuff, and it was just like every everyone had, and these reporters would like sort of like try to go and try to goad people into saying, well, those guys are just a bunch yeah, of poets. Yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like the sports kind of stuff, like sports. Yeah, like this the idea, like we're going to go, uh, this, this other team is no good and we're going to oh, crush them. And it's, you know, just yeah, yeah. like this journalistic style. Sure, of like, yeah. You know, Although it's kind of interesting because sports by definition, you're all sort of, it's like the same number of people at the same time who are about the same age, you know, whatever it's like. Whereas this actually has this generational aspect, this sort of historical, art historical claim involved. In this, in this sense, but I think it's just like the, the journalistic tactics sure. seemed kind of sports-oriented to me. Yeah, like yeah, if yeah. you read some of those articles. And sure. So you think that... Yeah. And there's some people that, are, that just refuse to be sort of like tricked in that, you know, like Ellington was famous for like, like no, 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 there's only two kinds of music. You know? It's good music and music that's not good. You know? Yeah, yeah. And sort of, so a lot of people were like really careful about what they would say, but sometimes people would just like, oh yeah, those kids, I can't believe that they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would get into this sort of fight. But there was like, there was a lot of controversy, it's kind of hard to imagine now in some ways, but there was a lot of controversy about that. This particular track was uh, Paul G. Lorenzo's recommendation for me to play you, um, which it only occurred to me this morning when I was preparing was uh, kind of funny because it's... You know, it's 54, it's like very late for Lester Young and the sort of conventional wisdom. I mean, he was like apparently a pretty serious like alcoholic at this point and like yeah, yeah. is often seen to have not be not be playing as well as he used to. Um, yeah, I which, know, that was another thing I never bought. I, there yeah. were a lot of writers wrote about that and it's just like, okay, did he have a good day every day? No, but before, you know, whatever, it was before he was in jail or whatever, it's not that every day was a good day then either, so it, yeah. it's kind of, I don't, if, did his tone change? Sure, but I mean, he was older, it's like, uh, things, you, you, yeah. can't, you can't say that it's due to some sort of like, no, I mean, an artist reflects, in the best case, <clears throat> even if it sound, sort of sounds weaker or whatever, He's reflecting what his life is, right. then it should sound that way. Then that's the best way for it to sound. Yeah. Then, then if it's like, oh, he lost his, you know, they say that about singers a lot, like, oh, you know, it started to get a little gravelly when he got older. And yeah, like, sure. No, that's how it should sound. <laughs> oh. oh, come on. Okay, what, Matt? You say, say what it's, it is. Uh, Paul Blay on piano. Yeah. And uh, uh, who's the bass? Is it Henry Grimes on bass? 
Uh, I can't remember. It's also. not. He's on this album as well. This is Bob Grinshaw. Bob Grinshaw. Who's the sax player? Is that first? Well, it's just like so obvious. Though. I can't remember the drum. The drummer is who I don't remember. It's um, Roy McCurdy. Oh yeah, Roy McCurdy. Yeah, yeah. He was a super versatile. Speaking of intersections of jazz, but sure. I'd anyway, like yeah. Of course, we have Coleman Hawkins and Sonny Rollins. And this is such a great record and so strange and weird. Yeah. And it's so nice that they do the tunes that they do. And it's so nice that Paul Blaze, the piano player. Yeah. Because he's like totally not playing up to the controversy of it all. It's just, he's just such a musically focused. Yeah. Did he die recently? Or he did last year. Uh, uh, like about a little less than a year ago. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I mean, you know, it was I like obviously that he's not playing up to the controversy though. You mean because he's not? Well, it's just yeah. I mean, this is such a like audacious idea in a way for the two of them to record together. Right. Like to me, Coleman Hawkins was playing very contemporary things in the '60s. You know, it was mm-hmm. not. I don't think he wasn't afraid to play with anyone. He would play with Dolphy. He would play with Sonny. What he played with and recorded with whoever. It's just yeah. like I don't care. Whatever. Let's do it. You know. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, of course he was much older, but I don't, I don't, I sort of like, I think he was like, sort of, a, um, you know, a viable candidate as much as, as anyone in those days to play with, you know, mm-hmm. whoever, and, yeah, they were, yeah, yeah. and they were certainly doing it. I mean, I don't really see it in that sense of like this historical... I think they're just two dudes that were both on the scene at the same time. And mm-hmm. That's how I see this. I don't yeah, see no, it yeah. Like I mean, it's it's two people like making music. I mean, it's five people making music in a recording studio. It's not yeah. much, like they're they're not necessarily thinking about like what an improbable combination of us to be here right now. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How did you? What what gave that away? I honestly just how he plays the saxophone. I mean, he just like there's this one thing, and then he played this thing, and then there was this one inflection. I was like, it's probably Gato, and then he did this one little inflection. I was like, people can't hear you point. Right there. By then, I knew it. Yeah, okay. Okay, anyway. But it... I mean, he has a really special way of doing that sustained high notes. He vocalizes it in a certain way that's just really unique. Um, I don't know this song, though. I don't... It's like... I don't think I do. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's an Alan Shorter album. Oh, it's that... Orgasm? Orgasm, yeah. I know, I have that one. I just haven't heard it in a long time. Okay, yeah. No, that tune is so odd, too. That's, yeah. Is that Alan Shorter's tune? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's so odd. No, I know that one. I just... Okay. So, I'm trying to remember who the rhythm section is. It's like, is it... Um, the, high, uh, the high notes plus vocalization that... 
Um, so when you say he, so he's like screaming a little bit yeah. with his actual voice, right, right. Well, his vocal voice. But it, it's playing a note and giving wow. it a little, like filling it out a little bit with your voice. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, that was very Coltrane, you know, all the, all the, you know, Coltrane did that and everyone after him like tried to do it better, kind of, like yeah. all the sort of post-Coltrane guys were really into that. Um, yeah. But Gato had this really special way of doing it. That, There was just, it turned into this kind of really unique thing. He just like chose this really small element of Coltrane style to like sort of really, and really just work the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. Like here. Right. That tune, that head is just so amazing because there's like a lot of music at that time sounded like that. Boom, we'll just get back to it. But he played like, or the stuff he wrote. Well, first of all, this vamp is like very unique. Even though it's very simple, it's very, very unique. Yeah. And then the head is just like really strange. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like really simple. It is. But it's. Yeah, there's just like nobody would have written that. Is this one of those? I don't know. Is it like Evan Parker and Lowell Coxell and somebody else? Evan Parker and Evan Parker and Evan Parker. Oh, okay. Ever many times. Yeah. Is it overdub or is it like processed? Because he did some of that stuff where it was like somebody would he would have somebody like pro live processing. There's plenty of this sort of repetitive sort of, you know, minimalist stuff that I, some of it I like, I'm not the biggest fan, but um, the, kind of the interesting thing about this is that, like, the, um, the way the things sort of overlap, like you can hear the higher notes of the horn sort of overlapping and they create these other, sort of like this wave shape of, like, the way that it's interacting, you know? Mm -hmm. And these create, when you have like two instruments or voices or whatever, if you play like two notes really in tune, not, not in tune necessarily according to the Western intonation, but in tune in general. With each other. It creates um, like a difference tone. A difference tone. Yeah, it's called a difference tone. And sometimes they can be really low. Like it's amazing. You'll hear like two Owebu players play the same. And you're just, whoa. Well, that's a acoustic property of the room or of, you know in certain rooms other frequencies resonate in certain mm -hmm. but <clears throat> that's a good thing when you're practicing learning how to play in tune is hearing the different tones and when you hear and like all music has it it's just like what sort of pops out based on the room or the, mm -hmm. you know like in a with a regular rhythm section a lot of it gets covered up but like mm -hmm. here you're hearing like some of it like Maybe can't hear it so well in this recording, but there is some like uh, thing running in there somewhere. Yeah, you know that's lower. That pitch is that's lower than what you can play on the horn. You know, and sometimes they're really quiet, or sometimes they're. Um, 
but that's the great thing. And different like groups of like you have different like if you talk to like chamber music people like different if you're like if it's an all brass ensemble, mm -hmm. they actually play in tune in a different way than a string quartet might, or uh -huh. just because of the way the instruments different like, resonate now. together. Like the pitches are actually kind of different. I think it's John Carter. It's like almost. Yeah, it's not. not. No. It's almost like. It's a real, real clarinet player. What do you mean, real, real? Like, not just a moonlighter. <laughs> not, you know. What makes you just. A saxophone player that plays a real clarinet. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's not one of those guys. What, what makes you say that that's a. Just the sound and. I was handling certain registers and certain problems of the instrument, just how thoroughly they've been sort of dealt with. Do you want to tell me what the problems of the instrument are? Yeah. Well, just the normal problem, like how do you get this note to sound better, or how do you uh -huh, get uh -huh. this kind of stuff, you know, just mm -hmm. like, it's not like Bill Smith. Or I don't know who that is, but I look forward to finding out. Uh, it's Jimmy Jufri. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, that would have been my next guess after you said the year. Well, the thing with Jufri is he was always really interested in orchestration and different, like, like he was super into Aaron Copeland and he was writing all this, like, stuff that really had very little to do with jazz or pop mm -hmm. music. In the Western suite. Stuff yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, which to us now it sounds kind of like this TV sort of music and stuff. TV like, music. Yeah, in many ways, that Western suite is kind of like there was a lot of TV music from that period that sounded a lot like. Not that that's what he was thinking of. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It ends up <coughs> in in hindsight, it ends up kind of like reminiscent of. Mm -hmm. But he was also always interested in sort of like kind of the more like classical or like the, the, this is serious music kind of mm -hmm. side of things and mm -hmm. he was writing pieces for string orchestras in like the sure. 40s and I mean sure he sort of had this parallel sort of interest in so but this is neither but I would see this as, as an extension of, of both he's like you know because he was always he was another guy that was like why does the rhythm section always have to sound like this mm -hmm. and he was one of the first ones to be like it doesn't we're going to have a whole record where the rhythm section doesn't play, they just play accents. They don't right. play the time right. through the whole thing. Right. And we're going to have, you know, and he was like asking those questions and dealing with those problems like so early on. Yeah. And this is sort of like slippy, slidey stuff. And then there's the long notes. And then there's, he covers quite a bit of ground. Still really melodic, even though it's really high, it's still kind of very melodic. But then he sort of like, dirties up this sort of like really clean melody. It's mm -hmm. really, you know, it's so much going on here. It's like... Mm, it's not Joe Maneri. No. Oh, it's... 
it's John Carter either. Yep. It kind of just almost, it's not, but it sort of could almost be Bobby Brown. It is Bobby Brown. Is it really? Yeah, it's Bobby Brown. Here you come. How do you oh, then it's that Frodo Gerstad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's rhythm section, I don't know. It could be, it could even be Frank. It is. Yeah, yeah. Frank. it could be Frank. And the bass player, I. It's like one of three people. Right. But that I know historically, though, not because of the sound. Right, 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 sure. Well, you can guess the bass player if you want, but I'm curious, how did you, what made you, what about the trumpet playing made you, or cornet playing made you think it was almost Bobby Bradford, but not? <laughs> the sound was so close to his sound. That, mm -hmm. And there is actually a little turn of his that he, he plays a lot that I recognize. How does it go? <laughs> if you want to sing it. That, this sort of chromatic thing is really... Okay, that's that right there, thing that's right that, there. Yeah, that okay, Bobby Bradford it. thing that's like really sticks out is what I was like, that could be one. Yeah, okay. Huh. That's yeah. funny, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. It's super, super characteristic of this. nice how the rhythm section's not trying to like, like they're creating this sort of consistent thing, but they're not like trying to be too pushy at the same time. Mm -hmm. it's, everybody's sort of like responding and it's really, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think it's like improvising isn't really about choices. I mean, of course there are choices and of course we make choice, but I don't think that's really like the end of it or even really as important as people think it is, uh -huh. or, or as important as some people might. It's all about choice. I don't really think so. Right, right. So because what can you then, I know you started to do this already, but can you formulate an alternative way of describing what it's about then? Like, because it's clearly not just like going with the flow, like if you were just kind of like... Yeah, but maybe it is though. Maybe that's what I'm, or maybe it's going with something, maybe not the flow, but it's, it's just going.
I mean, I will. Okay, I. <laughs> I don't know if I believe you. I hear things here and there, but I don't like really like get a record and sit down and put it on. No oh, well. Or maybe we should just you know let's take some mushrooms and just go to like four in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll have enough material for like five episodes yeah. with just me. I mean that kind of happened with 